0: We'll be looking in Matthew 8 this morning, so let's turn to Matthew 8, and we will start in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 13. Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. It says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes and another come and he comes and to my slave do this and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let me pray over these verses. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that shows us that you are who you said you are. That you have authority over all things. And Lord, I pray today that if there's someone here that doesn't know who you are, has not placed their faith in your authority, I pray that they would do that today. Speak to our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when Christian Herter was governor of Massachusetts, that was 1935 through 1937. Sorry, 1953 to 1957, sorry. He was running for a second term in in his in, in office, and so he was out campaigning. And after a busy day of campaigning, he came to a a uh, a church barbecue, and he had had no lunch, and he was out campaigning. So he thought he would take part of the food. He went, he got in line, and he was. Looking forward to the chicken because he was just famished, and he's going down the serving line. And the lady serving the chicken put a piece of chicken on his plate, and then turned to the next person in line. Well, he was really hungry, and he said uh, to the lady, "Ma'am, may I have another piece? I'm I'm pretty hungry." And she says, "Nope, one piece per customer. That's what I'm told. That's all you're getting." Well, he was kind of a a timid man or a modest man. He didn't throw his weight around, but he thought, "Surely I can get another piece of chicken if I, if I tell her who I am." So he says, "Well, do you not know who I am? I'm, I'm the governor of Massachusetts." And she says, "Well, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken." Next, you know, move on, right? Um, she was getting one piece because she was in charge of the chicken. Um, the thing about authority is that it's only as good as the person who holds it, right? The governor had authority over a lot of things. He did not have authority over the chicken at that church barbecue. And, and so authority is like that. We're reading in Matthew, and Matthew 8 and 9 is all focusing on the authority of Jesus, who He is and the authority that he has. And the authority is as, only as good as the person who holds it. He is God in the flesh. And he is the one that has all the authority. And we're going to see through this encounter what real faith in that authority looks like. This, this encounter with the Roman centurion. So let's look at the story. See what we can learn about genuine faith and Jesus' authority. And the first thing that I want us to kind of get, get today is that genuine faith is, is found in Jesus alone. We just sang, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Genuine faith is found in Christ alone. We have this military leader, a centurion. He needed help. He had a servant at home who was being plagued by some sort of illness. It sounds like some sort of physical ailment. And to find that answer, it sounds like he went straight to Jesus. He didn't look for other means and went to Jesus as a last resort or tried to cover his bases and go to this thing and this thing and I'll throw in Jesus just in case. He went to Christ. He went Christ, to Christ alone and said, I need your help because faith is found in Jesus alone. The the word imploring that it says here in verse in verse 5 5 through 7 it says Jesus entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him imploring him and saying lord my servant is lying paralyzed at home fearfully tormented and Jesus said to him I will come and heal him that word in verse 5 imploring it ha- it's based in the word to call alongside of he says, I've got this great need of this person I care a lot about, and I'm calling Jesus to come alongside of me and walk alongside of me. The interesting thing is that the same word is later used in, in 1 John 2.1 to talk about the Holy uh, to talk about Jesus. And in John 14, 6, the same word is used for the Holy Spirit. It's the word advocate. It's the word comforter. It's the word helper. It is that he came to the helper. He implored the helper and saying, I need you to come alongside of me and walk with me in this process. He, and, and this is how the centurion saw Jesus, the advocate, the comforter, the Helper, and Jesus says, "Immediately, I'll come and heal him. I've got it. No problem. We're, let's go. Let's go. Take care of it." There wasn't any questions on what's going on with him or any kind of of, of conditions. It's that this, this centurion went to expressed his faith in Christ alone. He went to Christ alone, and Jesus says. I'm ready to go with you. I'm ready to walk alongside of you. Let's go. The man placed his faith in Jesus and no one else, and Jesus immediately responds. The person with genuine faith puts that faith in no one else but Christ, and when we do, he immediately responds. We are, we, we are to claim our inability when we come to Christ. When we are without Christ, to, to have Christ come into our life, we must claim our inability to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to bring salvation to ourselves. That is placing our faith in Christ alone. A lot of people say, well, I thought God helps those who help themselves, Right? We have lots of people who read the Bible on a regular basis. I'll give a whole dollar to someone who will show me the verse in the Bible that says God helps those who help themselves because it's not in there. God doesn't help those who help themselves because we are unable to help ourselves. We just have to get to that place in our mind. In fact, you know where that term God helps those who helps themselves comes from? A lot of people think it comes from, from Benjamin Franklin. Well, he might have perpetuated the idea, but it actually comes from Aesop's fables. Written in the, like the 5th century B.C., about Jeremiah's day, 6th century B.C. It's a time of Jeremiah's ministry. And it's, it comes from a story called Hercules and the Wagoneer. A wagoneer is someone who drives a wagon. And there's this wagoneer who is driving on a wet and muddy road. It's got a heavy load in this wagon. And he comes to the part of the road where the, the wagon sinks halfway into the mire. And the more the horses pull, the deeper the wagon goes. And the wagoneer gets out. And, and he whips the horses, and they don't go, and, and he tries to push it out, and he can't, and he tries, and he tries. Finally, he kneels down, and he prays to Hercules. And here's, here's the prayer that he prayed. "'O Hercules, help me in my hour of distress,' quoth he." But Hercules appeared to him and said, "'Tut, man, don't sprawl there. Get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves.'" My point is this. It's not the Christian faith that says God helps those who help themselves. It's Greek mythology that says the gods help them who help themselves. It It is not of God at all. Because God doesn't want those who can pull themselves from their own bootstraps because they can't. God wants those who claim their inability and to turn to Him alone. There are times like we try to place there are times that we we might try to place our faith in ourselves instead of placing our faith in Jesus alone. We might say, "I know Jesus has the authority to get me through this trial, but I don't really trust that authority, so I'm going to try other things." Or maybe, I don't trust that Jesus has the authority. I I know He has the authority to save me, but I don't trust that His authority is enough to save me, so I have to do more to earn His love. It It is trusting in our works to get in favor, get more favor from God. When we place our faith in the cross of Christ and anything else, like our good works, when we say, I trust Christ saves me and forgives me, but I have to do this other stuff, then we're not trusting in Christ alone. And the Scripture says, that's not salvation. Because salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This centurion, this unclean Gentile, looks to Jesus and says, you're the only one who can help me. I can't do it. No one else can do it. No one in the crowd can do it. So he went straight to Jesus and said, you have to help me. He shows genuine faith by trusting in Jesus alone. Genuine faith is trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And genuine faith also recognizes Jesus' authority. Genuine faith recognizes Jesus' authority. Look at 8 and 10. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. All you got to do is say it. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those following, truly I say to you have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This centurion was a remarkable man. In fact, every centurion mentioned in Scripture is mentioned with honor. If you, think of, if you, if you look at that, there was the centurion who, when Jesus died on the cross, recognized that this man was the Son of God. There was the centurion. There's this centurion. There's Cornelius, who is a centurion, who is um, who comes to Christ with, with Peter, being told, "You can go to Gentiles and share your faith with the Gentiles." And so, Cornelius, we hear about him, and his whole family comes to know Christ. There was centurions that are mentioned in Paul's ministry, and they're always shown as helping in some way. There's, but there is something significant about this centurion. And what do we know about him? First of all, we know he excelled militarily. He is a centurion. There was a, in a legion of Roman soldiers, there were 6,000 men. That's a legion. And these legions were broke up into 60 centuries. That is 60 groups of 100 men. And there was a centurion in charge of each one of these, these uh, particular centuries. They're responsible for discipline, morale, and and people have said they're the cement that held the Roman army together. In fact, this Greek historian in 200 B.C. describes centurions this way. He says, "...they must not be so much venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought to not be over-anxious to rush to the fight." But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post. The point is that they were the finest soldiers in, in the Roman army. That's one thing we know about him. We also know that he was an excellent master. He had a servant. And the word that's used there could be used for the word son as well. He had a servant, but he loved this servant and wanted his care to be, to be good. And so he wanted him to be healthy. He laid paralyzed at home, and he was tormented. And he says, I want Jesus to come and take care of him. He had good master-servant relations. He was a good Master, he had a good grasp also of the cultural and religious differences of the day. In Matthew 8, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood that Jesus was a Jewish teacher, and as a rabbi, he would not be able to go into a Gentile's home or he'd be considered unclean. And he understood that, he respected that, and said, Jesus, you can't come into my house because I respect your cultural difference than me. I just say the word, because if you come into my house, you'll be unclean. He he understood the Jewish culture, their religion, and he was sensitive to it. But ultimately, what set him apart was that he had an excellent understanding of Jesus' authority. He says in verse nine, "Look, I understand authority." The centurion says, "People above me give me orders, and I gotta follow them. And anyone under me gives orders, they gotta follow them." He says, I, uh, I understand what authority's like. And in the Roman world, you know, Caesar, he had authority. What he said goes. And, 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 you know, that kind of went down the ranks. And if you defied a centurion, you were ultimately defying Caesar. What we find is that the centurion says, I understand your authority because he understood where Jesus' authority came from. Where did Jesus' authority come from? It It was God. He understood that Jesus had the authority from God Himself. That's how He could heal. And so He says, I recognize that authority. I recognize that Jesus was under the authority of God the Father, and that when Jesus spoke, God spoke, and to defy Jesus was to defy the Father that his word came with authority and power, that enough to be able to heal his servant. And that's why in verse 10, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who are following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The word great here isn't, the, uh, isn't about the amount of faith. It's about quality. You could say, I've not seen such great faith here in Israel. And that, that's the contrast. Here is a, a Gentile, unclean, not, doesn't say he's a God follower. Usually it points out if the Gentile is a Godfather. Here's what we would say a lost person, right, who is out there in the world, And he is expressing faith in Jesus and his authority and his power and who he was and where he came from. Yet those who should have been the first to accept Jesus's authority, the Jews and the the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were rejecting him. In fact, the same word is used where it says Jesus marveled at his faith, the same word is used in Mark 6.6 6, to express Jesus' thoughts on the Jewish disbelief. Look what it says in Mark 6.6. 6. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. He was marveled at the Gentiles' faith, and the same word, he was marveled at the Pharisees' unbelief. And so the question is, what does Jesus marvel at you? Your belief or your unbelief? Those who should know the Messiah, the Jews, they continually defied Jesus and therefore they defied God and continually needed proof. Prove to us you're the Messiah. Prove to us you are who you say you are. Does that describe your walk constantly wanting proof from Jesus, constantly defying Jesus' words and saying, show me, prove to me that you can do what you say you can do. See, the truth is, Jesus has authority. Whether you want it over your life or not, He has authority. He has authority over your life. He has authority over your eternal destination. He has authority over your finances. He has authority over your relationships. He has authority. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, He has authority in your life. There was a story I read in October of 2014 In Newburyport, Massachusetts, there was a 20-year-old man by the name of Christopher Noone. I don't know if he made up that last name or if that's his last name. N-O-O-N-E. Christopher Noone. And he had been caught driving without a license again. He was this habitual driver without a driver's license. And they would capture him, and they they would charge him, and then he'd have to go to court, and he would say... I don't acknowledge the court's authority in my life because he said he wasn't a person. I don't know if he was saying, I'm no one, so you can't charge me. I don't know. So he'd go toward this court and he'd say, I'm not paying the fine because you have no authority in my life. And they'd say, no, you've got to pay the fine. And finally he'd end up paying the fine. He paid a $200 fine the, this particular time. And he left the court And got right into his car and drove away without a license. And the state patrolman saw him and chased him down and gave him a ticket and charged him again. And he came back to the court and said, "You have no authority in my life." And they said, "No, you—you that you are a habitual repeater." They charged him nine hundred dollars this time for driving without a license. And he just continually did this and did this. So they were bringing him to court and they said, you have to, Uh, he waived his right to an attorney because he doesn't need an attorney because he's no one. And they placed this waiver to, to, to sign this document and he refused to sign the document because this court has no authority in his life. And it just goes on and on this story. He was facing jail time and fines because he refused to acknowledge the court's authority in his life and whether Christopher no one acknowledged the authority of the court in his life or not the court he lived in a place where courts had authority over his life and perhaps jail time might teach him that lesson I don't know because there's going to be a point where he's going to be facing the consequences of that rebellion against the authority in his life you just can't go and say I don't acknowledge that authority And spiritually, it's the same way. We kind of think sometimes the same way. Christ has no authority in my life. We may not say it like that, but we'll say, this part of my life, I'll surrender to God, but this part, I don't care what he's saying, this is mine. And he has no authority over this part of my life. But the fact is, he does. He has authority in every aspect of your life. Whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, He has authority over your life. And if you die rejecting that authority, and you say, I never accept Christ, I'm going to live my life for me, I am on the throne of my life, and if you die in a state of rejecting Him, you will spend eternity in punishment. But when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord of our life, when we acknowledge his authority over us as king of our life, what he says goes without question. Then we'll experience real eternal life. Are you like the centurion who realized Jesus had given authority of heaven? He was given the authority of heaven and he was able to do all he claimed. Real faith, like the centurion, recognizes Jesus' authority and, dis- and, and displays genuine faith in that, in that authority. And we can also see in this passage that, that genuine faith doesn't come from genetics. Now, follow me on this. In verse 11 and 12, it says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom... Will be cast into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus declares that this gentile 's faith was the greatest in all of Israel that all these people who the promises of God had been given to and those that the Messiah was sent to should have had this faith, but the one outside had this greater faith, and then he begins speaking of the messianic banquet is what it's called in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah twenty five, six through eight. Isaiah twenty-five, six through eight, and listen to this, listen to this description of this banquet. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away, will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people. From all the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. It's an amazing picture at the end of time where every tongue, every tribe, every nation has gathered together. He says everyone from the East, everyone from the West, that's talking about all these, all these Gentile nations who are not part of Israel, including Israel, but everyone else coming together and having a great banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, whatever we might want to call it. But when the... When, the, the rabbis would preach upon this particular text in Isaiah. They would kind of edit out the idea of all the people, that this was only for God's chosen. It was only for the Israelites, and that the other nations were not invited in, because they were the ones who received God's promise. And that salvation came to them, not because of their faith, but because of what their DNA said. That they were born Jewish, and so they were going to be part of this thing. And Jesus comes here and it says, it is not your DNA, it is your faith. It is not how you were born, it's not who your parents were, it's not who your grandparents were. That salvation comes to those who have faith in Christ. John Dyer, a Welsh poet and pastor from the 1700s, he wrote this, A man may go to heaven without health, without riches, without honors, without learning, without friends, but he can never go there without Christ. Today, the world is looking for ways to get to God without Christ. They want heaven without the one way to get there. And they look, and they try, and they do all sorts of things, but it doesn't come. And some may be trusting in their genetics. That is to say, my parents were really good Christians. And so I'm a good Christian. Some may be trusting in their children's salvation. I'm a Christian because my kids are Christian. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, said that he talked with a man and said, Are you a Christian? He says, Yeah, I was born in Texas. (laughs) Right? People are trusting in a lot of different things other than Jesus Christ alone. It's not about genetics. It's not about, uh, about who your grandparents were or who your parents were. The question is your faith. Are you placing your faith in Christ alone for salvation? If you believe you're a Christian because your parents are Christians or because your children are Christian, and if that's what you're trusting in, you're trusting in the wrong thing, and you need to go to God and be saved today. Genuine faith doesn't come through genetics. It's when we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, when we recognize the authority in our life. But we can also see here the the good news in, in verse 13 is that genuine faith is rewarded by God. Look what it says in 13. Genuine faith is rewarded by God. And Jesus came to the centurion Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus says, The servant is healed. And Matthew says, At that moment, he was healed. I want to be perfectly clear, I'm not saying that we get anything and everything that we pray for. We can have testimony after testimony of how that is not true, I'm guessing. This isn't saying that you get whatever you want, that God is somehow a a cosmic genie, that if you just rub the lamp in the right way, you get everything that you've ever wanted. That's the prosperity gospel and that's a false gospel because it places a terrible burden on people especially to the poor that says you could just pull yourself out of the situation if you just had enough faith. And that's not what the scripture says. What I'm trying to say is that when a person has genuine faith God works powerfully because of it. And the most amazing reward is that we get a relationship with the the creator and sustainer of life. That we get to spend eternity with Christ and with the Father and with the Spirit. Hebrews eleven six says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him genuine faith is rewarded because a person looks for God and finds him he believes god exists he believes who god says he is and is rewarded i mean i trust if i go to a doctor with if i'm sick and i go to a doctor i'm placing my faith in him by saying or her saying i need this fixed and they they do something and it's fixed if I go to a lawyer and, and there's a legal battle that I'm dealing with, I say, I, I'm placing my faith in this lawyer to say, I, I trust your expertise, what you say, I will, I will, un, uh, I will follow your recommendation because I, you know more than me. If we go to a bank and we put our money in a bank we are trusting we put our faith in that banker that the next day our money is going to be there right there is there is this kind of faith see i believe my savior when i take him to be my savior when i say i am helpless otherwise there is absolutely no way for me to get to god and i trust in him when i put that in his care and say christ It's up to you. I can't get to heaven and I'm placing all my faith that who you are and what you said is what will get me to heaven to get me restored to God. Now you see, you can believe that there's a person named Jesus. And James says, that's great. The demons believe that and they shudder. It's not believing that someone named Jesus exists. It is it is placing your faith in them if i can i can know about a doctor and say boy that doctor sounds really good but until i place my care into his hands i've not placed my faith in him i can hear about a really good bank but until i've placed my money in that bank i've not placed my faith in that bank it's the same thing i can hear about christ but until i've placed all my all my Trust in him for my salvation. That is when we are rewarded with salvation. The Syrian, centurion placed his faith in Jesus to heal, and Jesus rewarded him. And when we place our faith in Christ to heal our sin, he will reward us with eternal life and forgiveness. the so story centers around a miraculous healing, but the major emphasis is the remarkable faith of the centurion. Even as a Gentile, he came to Jesus and no one else. He recognized Jesus' authority. His faith was rewarded. And so I'm asking you, what is God revealing to you in this passage today? Have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And here's, here's how you can know. If I were to say to you, if we were talking one-on-one and think through this answer, if I say, you, if you were to die right now and you stood before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And if the answer is, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Or I've done some bad, but my good outweighs the bad or I'm going to church on a regular basis and I read and I pray, I read my Bible and I pray and I give. And if your answers are all about you, you're trusting in you for salvation. And it's not enough. And you'll fall short. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you stood before God, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say something like, you shouldn't, (laughs) right? I don't deserve to go there, but I placed all my faith in Jesus Christ and he said I could come on his behalf. And that his blood is covering my sins because I could never pay for it. And I'm trusting in that to get into heaven. And the answer is all directed toward Christ then that is then then you're trusting in Christ alone. If you're here today and you're trusting in anything other than Christ alone, choose today to trust in him alone for salvation. Or maybe you're a believer and you and, and you have part of your life that you refuse to surrender the, to the authority of Christ you say, this part of my life is mine and I'm not letting it go. Christ is saying, I have authority in that part of your life whether you like it or not. Maybe today you surrender that area to him and have the freedom that comes from that. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And maybe that's what you're looking for. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. Are you someone who needs Christ. You're someone who needs to trust in Christ alone. You've been trusting in so many other things. Don't worry what other people may think. What matters is your eternal destination based upon Christ and his salvation. If you've never trusted in him, trust in him today. Believer, if there's an area God is burdening you right now to surrender to him, You've been running on your direction, your authority, what you think, and God says, that part of your life needs surrendered to me today. Give it to Him today and experience the freedom that that gives you. Heavenly Father, I come to you and thank you that Jesus does have authority and that salvation's based on Him. I am so Um, uh, untrustworthy and so changeable that I could never trust my salvation if it was based on me. I thank you that Christ is our rock and our salvation and we can trust in him and it will never change because he is unchangeable. God, if there's someone who needs to experience the freedom of salvation today, I pray that they would not leave before they trusted in you. And God, if there's a believer who needs to surrender their life, some part of their life to you, you've been working on them, you've been convicting them, and today you're telling them, I have authority over that part of my life. I pray that they would surrender to you today. Move among us in a special way. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.